the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Welcome again, folks, to the Pat Williams Saturday Power Hour. You're listening to 94.9 FM and AM 950, The Word in Orlando. Uh, We always look forward to our visits with you, and so does Alan Dempsey. He's our engineer, and Andrew Herdliska is our producer. Tim Stevens joins us from Houston, Texas, and uh, his book is out. It's called Mark... I love a dare to walk away from judgment and hypocrisy. Welcome, Tim. How are you? I'm doing very well. Thank you for having me. Uh, I'm interested in that subtitle, a dare to walk away from judgment and hypocrisy. Uh, what's that mean? You know, the heart for the book came, it began just by my um, observation of a lot of the judgment and criticism that happens especially in the online world and in the media world, especially around elections or things like the Brett Kavanaugh hearings, you know, you just find a lot of times that people with the Christian label will begin to um, tear down and pour judgment at those that are on the opposite side. It started there, but it quickly moved to like, wait a second, I don't have this nailed in my own life either. There's times when I have judgment thoughts or judgment words or comments. Um, or when I'm impatient or angry. And so as I began to study the Gospels and the life of Jesus, uh, really began to realize that uh, we're, we're called to a higher path, that we can do better as Christians. Tim, uh, there's some interesting chapter titles in your book. Uh, let's get started. Heart Surgery in a Cornfield. Uh, <laughs> you got to explain that one. You know, I start the book. That The book is, is largely uh, surrounding stories, and some are stories from my own life, mm-hmm. some are stories from others, and some are stories from the life of Jesus. I start the book uh, just telling a story about a time when I was a young kid, about fourth grade or so, and doing what fourth graders do, goofing off, messing around with a friend out in the cornfield. And I took, there was a bulldozer sitting there, and I went in, and I tried to start it, and the keys were there. Mm. And then then I kind of got angry that I couldn't start this. I couldn't figure it out. And I walked out, and I'm ashamed to this day to say this, I walked out in the cornfield and I buried those keys in a hole. Oh, my. And walked away. And just the reflection of that in my own life, that was that was a one of my earliest memories of just being aware of the darkness of my soul at times, of, of the fact that there, there are times like Paul when... I don't do what I should do, and I do do what I don't want to do, and I make some decisions and choices that are less than loving. And um, and as I reflect on that story or others throughout the book, it's it's like kind of an awakening of like, okay, uh, uh, I've been called to a much higher place than this, and I need to be intentional about being a person marked by love. I'm tired of the mask. Explain that one. Yeah. Um, so... It seems like I was a, a pastor for 20 years mm. and been been in um, Christian ministry for my whole career for almost 35 years now. And it seems like, in my experience, in the Christian world, in the church world, that part of what makes it work, for better or for worse, and I think oftentimes for worse, is the fact that we wear these masks, that, that we're not allowed to admit that we're flawed human beings, that we're not allowed to say out loud that we don't understand every passage of the Bible, that we're not able to say, you know what, sometimes I do get angry, and sometimes I do cuss, or whatever it is. Sometimes I, there's things that where I'm less than less than loving and less than what God has called me to. And I think I think wearing the mask, it, it puts us in a place that's unattainable, and it makes everyone else wear masks. And so I'm just, I've kind of come to a point where I am just kind of admitting there's things I don't know. 
there's things sometimes I mess up in. There's there's things that I can do better. Uh, that I'm on a journey. Um, that the, the longer I've been a Christian, a, a, a lot of things have become muddier, and some things have become much much clearer for me. And, and in, in that is just studying the life of Jesus is that uh, we're to be um, marked by love in all of our interactions and conversations and the way we treat people. Tim, the third topic you write about is simply called Tattoos and Traditions. Uh, what's that about? Yeah, uh, great question. So I, I uh, spent most of my adult life living about 10 minutes from the campus of Notre Dame. Mm. So almost 30 years, uh, enough that it got into my bloodstream. Like I am diehard Irish fan, love watching, especially football season. Um, and you know, with any, and, and probably your listeners have, there, you know, I don't know if it's Florida or Florida State or, you know, we all have kind of our different fan bases, folks that follow sports. And every every uh, college team, every sports team has traditions and they have logos and they have brands and they have uh, marches and they have the same thing that they do when they come out of the tunnel or the same thing that they do between the third and fourth quarter, all these, these traditions. And, you know, it could be argued that Jesus left behind one of the most... Um, enduring organizations ever um, ever in the history of our universe, in, in that we have this band of Christians that started more than 2,000 years ago, and to this day, the Church continues to grow. And yet what's interesting is, he didn't say, you know, my, Christ, my disciples will be known by uh, a mark on their skin, by a tattoo, by a uh, certain sign or insignia or brand that they'll put outside on all of their buildings. The one thing he said is that my disciples will be known by their love for each other. It's like, that's going to be the hallmark. That's going to be the calling card. That's going to be the thing that sets us apart is our love for one another, our love for God, love for each other. And, uh, and, and I think that's the piece that we sometimes miss because we, we think we're banded together because we believe the same issues or because we, lobby the same um, topics or we're against the same thing. But I think it's higher than that. I think, I think we're to be called and known by our love for each other. I want you to explain <clears throat> the time God spoke. So um, God spoke in my studies. What I found is that God spoke twice mm. in, in verbally while Jesus was on earth. One was at his baptism. And one was at his transfiguration, um, which is kind of a fancy word we use for when he went back up into heaven. And both times, interestingly, uh, he said almost the same exact thing. So in the first time under the baptism, this is in Matthew 3, he says, uh, this is a dove descended out of heaven, and you guys know the story, but he says, this is my son, chosen and marked by my love, Ooh. the light of my life. Almost like Okay, he's going to have a brand on him, and it's going to be the love of God. Uh, and then the same thing happens at his transfiguration, uh, when Peter, James, and John, they're with Jesus on a mountain. He's being taken back up into heaven, and God once again speaks verbally and says, This is my son, marked by my love, focus of my delight, listen to him. That's in Matthew 17. Mm. Really interesting to me, very short you know, sentences, uh, but very interesting that both times, what God chose to say is, this is my son marked by my love. Famous last words. That's your next topic, Tim. Explain that. Yeah. Um, so I find it interesting that when someone is dying, that people really lean in to hear what they're going to say. I don't know if you remember, this was 10 years ago, probably. Mm-hmm. There was a professor from the Carnegie Mellon University, um, and this video went viral, but this, it was called The Last Lecture. And he stood up in front of uh, mm -hmm. one of his classes uh, there at Carnegie Mellon and gave his final words. Mm -hmm. And one thing he said that kind of I, I took away, he said, we cannot change the cards we're dealt, just how we play the hand. And those, that's a great phrase, and probably a thousand, maybe a hundred thousand people have said something similar. But... What made it really important was because it was Randy's last words, last public words, and he died just a few months after that. Um, similarly, my uh, my brother-in-law passed away five years ago of uh, ALS, and he was a pastor, 
and he went to preach his last sermon, and he could barely get the words out um, because he's really struggling to speak. But a couple thousand people um, came and listened and leaned in because they were his last words. So last words like really mean a lot. So if you think about what were Jesus' last words, at least kind of in a group setting, and it was the Last Supper. And they didn't know it was Last Supper. They probably just, you know, figured it was dinner. But Jesus gathered people around the table, his disciples. First thing he did was he showed them what love is when he got up and he went around and washed each of their feet. My guest is Tim Stevens. We got another segment with Tim right here on the Pat Williams Saturday Power Hour. Uh, This is 94.9 FM and AM 950, The Word in Orlando. Tim Stevens is the author of Marked by Love. He's in Houston, Texas. And Tim, you were talking to us just before that break, and I want you to finish your thoughts, please. So it's interesting to me that after Jesus goes around the room and um, washes his disciples' feet, then he kind of gives a little speech, and we find out that these are his last words, at least kind of in this public setting. And he says uh, that there's a new command I want to give to you. Love one another. As I have loved you, love one another. By this, everyone will know you're my disciples if you love one another. It's a 35-word speech. Mm -hmm. And yet he repeats three different times that his priority for these disciples sitting there is that they love one another. And and so I think that's a speech for us as well, and it's as practical and tangible and relevant today as it was when he spoke those words 2,000 years ago. Tim, here's the next topic. Uh, I don't want to be called a Christian. Uh, What are you writing there? Yeah. um, uh, What I've learned through my life is that labels get diluted and don't mean so much anymore. Um, I grew up pretty far on the right end of fundamentalist and um, independent Baptist context, and um, and there were certain things that would be true about that circle. Um, I pastored in a church that was United Methodist for a number of years. Uh, I worked in the 80s when I was in high school, worked uh, on the Ronald Reagan campaign and as a vocal member of the Moral Majority so I would have been considered a conservative. Um, but all these labels now, Baptist, Methodist, Presbyterian, Anglican, Lutheran, conservative, liberal, they just don't mean a whole lot. The people have uh, have pinholed us in uh, under those categories in ways that um, might be fair, might not be fair. Um, and even the term Christian, if under the, under the category of Christian would be the folks that in Kansas that wave the picket signs and banners and protest out of outside of uh, military funerals and say some pretty vile things from a Christian context. Um, not too many years ago, a Christian pastor in, in Florida actually publicly burned a, a, the Koran to incite Muslims around the world. So there's things that are being done under the name of Christian. And, um, my, and I don't have a problem with the word Christian. I just think that a better word might be a disciple, might be follower of Jesus. Um, mm-hmm. When you type into Google the word Christians are, the very I did this just recently, the very first five search results were Christians are annoying, Christians are hate-filled, hypocritical, delusional, and narrow-minded. Um, and so I just kind of want to like reframe the conversation. It's not about a specific word. It's about being a disciple of Jesus, following Jesus, following the words of Jesus, following the life of Jesus. And to me, that was all context. Uh, his, the context of his life surrounded love. And wouldn't it be cool if two years or five years or ten years from now, people could type into Google, Christians are, and they would come up, Christians are patient, Christians are loving, Christians are meeting the needs of the world. Because I think in large part that's true. We've just lost that. Next topic, lessons in a white pickup truck. <laughs> yeah, so um, I tell the story in the book about Daryl, uh, who was uh, an adult in my life when I was a teenager. And uh, Daryl and I, Daryl would just ask me questions 
that I had no answers for because I was kind of pretty isolated, pretty insulated. Uh, so he would just kind of mess with me a little bit. One time he said he ran ran a, a set of nursing homes and um, he asked me if I wanted a job at his, one of his nursing homes. And I said, man, that'd be great. I was 16 years old. I said, I just can't work on Sunday. And he said, why? I said, well, because it's the sin, of course. It's a day of rest. It's the Sabbath. You know, I'm, I'm like 15, 16 years old. I, I'm so smart. I know so much. <laughs> And he says, really? So we should just let all the people in the nursing homes and hospitals just send for themselves on Sunday? Uh, which I didn't have a very good answer for. Uh, so we talked about other things. And he just continued to um, to bring, to kind of poke holes in things that I believe, but things I never really thought about. Like, when is Jesus going to return? And how do we know the will of God? And are there going to be animals in heaven? And Was the earth really created in six days? And all these kinds of things. And what he did for me is he challenged, not that I'd changed my thinking on everything, but he challenged me to really study and focus in and figure out what I believed um, about my faith, about my own experience. Um, and I think to some degree, I'm still figuring that out. I'm 51 years old. I'm still kind of untangling and reassembling and uh, figuring out what is the core of the gospel and how does, what does that mean to me in my life. Tim, tell us about Bob's simple question. So I had a pastor, his name was Greg Bishop, and uh, he wasn't a bishop, he was a youth pastor, but his last name was Bishop. And Greg would, uh, he was kind of nurturing me to be a pastor. This is when I was in my mid to upper teens. And Greg would take me all around central Iowa, and we would go sit on ordination councils and listen to pastors as they were being ordained be drilled with questions. And there was one guy, I went to three or four of these, and there was one guy, older guy, probably in his 80s, went to every single one, only ever asked one question, asked the same question every time. And uh, his question to these ordination candidates was, which attribute of God is more dominant or most dominant, his holiness or his love? So he'd ask that question. I remember uh, one of these sessions during lunch, sitting around, and I'm kind of this teenager sitting around all these very wise pastors who've been there to ask questions, and one of the pastors asked Bob, this guy, they said, Bob, why do you always ask that question? And, uh, and, and why do you never seem to care which way they answer? And Bob said, um, I don't know if I know what the correct answer is. I just want to make sure every pastor is struggling with the question. And so I began to think about that. Is there, like, a right answer to that? And, uh, what was interesting to me, there's a story in the New Testament in Matthew about a time that Jesus was, they were trying to trick Jesus into answering questions, and they, they'd they ask him a question, and then he'd kind of spin it around, and then they'd ask him another question, spin it around, and the text says that, that uh, they kind of got tired of asking questions, so they reverted to the back of the crowd. And, um, and that's when they decided they'd swing one more question at him to try to trick him. These are the Pharisees. These are the people responsible for protecting the law. And they said, what's the most important commandment? What's the most important law? Knowing that if he picked one, that that would be like anathema, that would be heresy, uh, because for them, all of Scripture was even. But Jesus didn't blink. He didn't hesitate. He didn't redirect or refute their question. He just jumped in and said, here's the most important. Love the Lord your God with all your passion, prayer, and intelligence. This is the most important. And he said, there's a second one also. Love others as well as you love yourself. I think the answer to Bob's question is that that love is what can filter everything else that we know about God, that love of God and love of others is preeminent. The channels between the channels, uh, what's that about? Another story of figuring out how love translates to sexuality. So I tell a story about when I, when I was a kid, when my mom came in and found me kind of looking at channels I wasn't supposed to. So back in the day, we had these old, big, large, as, as big as a book, uh, remote controls, except they weren't really remote because they had a cord kind of stretched across the rim over to the TV. And if you held the knobs just right, you could see channels you weren't supposed to get, at least as a kid. Mm. And so, uh, and as an adult, right? So I, I told tell the story in there about just learning about sexuality and becoming aware of the fact that I am a sexual being and that, that I'm going to be tempted in ways, and that it really comes down to understanding 
um, the love of God, understanding how God views people, that as I, as I understand more and grapple with more and um, embody more the love of God in my life, then I'm going to be, have less temptation than I do when I'm not aware of that. A 200-pound bag of sewage. Oh, boy. Uh, Tim, you're going to have to explain that one to us. This is just kind of the essence of the gospel. So mm. I start out by talking about the fact that we all can are kind of carrying around the weight of our own junk, whether for me, you know, I tell the story about the channels between the channels or as a child burying those keys in the cornfield um, <laughs> or as an adult being impatient or mouthing off at someone. We carry around the weight, um, this overwhelming sense that like we have this weight of our own junk on our back and we kind of think we're the only one and this weight becomes unbearable and no one can see it, but it's kind of like you're carrying a 200 pound bag of sewage around on your shoulders. And it might be, for some folks, it might be alcohol or tobacco, it might be sex, it might be money, um, it might, you know, there's all these temptations in life that we use to kind of fill the void that we're feeling and try to make ourselves feel more whole. But at the end of the day, I mean, we are broken people, and there's nothing we can do about that. And um, and we have, going back to the mask, we have this sense that Everyone else is better than me, and if they knew the real me, I would not even be allowed to come to church because I just don't measure up at all. And I just kind of unroll in that in that uh, chapter, unroll what the gospel is. Mm-hmm. Um, that uh, it's more than trying; it's more than just attempting to do better. It's really giving our lives over to Jesus, kind of accepting what the shame that he lifted from us, the baggage that he lifted from us as he died on the cross. And there's nothing we can do to fix or manufacture that. It's a, it's a gift that we have to uh, accept. What is Jesus as jewelry all about? Uh, just the fact that in America, um, oftentimes we put on Christianity, we put on Jesus, kind of like we put on an Apple Watch. Or kind of like we put on, you know, our favorite brand of shirt. Um, it's just something we add to our life. So it's like it's like decor. It's like jewelry. It's like something versus it actually making a difference and changing the essence of who we are. A lot of us treat Jesus like a membership. Like we're on the Jesus team. We have the card in our wallet. We can pull it out when when we lose a job, or we pull it out when things go bad, or we don't get the check in the mail we thought, or our ex-spouse is causing issues with the kids. Um, so we're, we're wearing Jesus kind of like jewelry. And, um, and I, I think, too, there's something to consider. Like, do we trust Jesus or do we just know about Jesus? And that's going to make a difference in, in how we live um, and whether it's kind of just a consumer thing where, like an Apple Watch, like, We've got it. It's kind of cool. It's a little bit, you know, in most places in America, it's still kind of cool. It's accepted. It can, especially in the South, it can be culturally acceptable. Um, but, uh, but God calls us to a whole lot more than that. Stop talking and start loving. That's your next topic. Yeah. So I was eating dinner, uh, lunchtime actually with a friend and, um, we're eating, and he says to the waitress after we've ordered our food, she comes back around to check on us, and he says, hey, I have a question um, for you. And, and the waitress, her name was Julie, and the waitress says, okay, I'll try to answer. And he says, what have you done with Jesus? Mm. And I'm sitting there just like quietly. I'm a little bit embarrassed, but then I'm kind of embarrassed that I'm embarrassed. And she kind of is taken back, and she kind of stammers a little bit. and says, well, you know, I don't really go to church, and he kind of drills a little bit more, and she can tell she's trying to get away, and he kind of keeps pressing with questions. And I came back from that lunch meeting feeling a little bit disturbed. Um, I was I was concerned with myself. Why did this embarrass me? Um, thinking, you know, I could hear kind of preacher voices in my head saying, you must be embarrassed by Jesus. But I, I wasn't embarrassed by Jesus. I just felt like that was an incredibly inappropriate interaction. We had no relationship with Julie. We were taking advantage of the fact that she had to serve us at that table. We had not earned the right 
be heard as about something as intimate as uh, faith and spirituality. And then I started looking in the Gospels and realized that many times, uh, more often than not, when Jesus did something for people, he would he would end by saying, "Don't tell anyone what I've done." You know, he he healed these two blind guys, and uh, Jesus touched their eyes, and as they walk away, he says, "See that no one knows about this." Uh, another time, he heals a guy with leprosy, and uh, you know this just terrible infectious disease. And then he says, "Don't tell anyone about this. Instead, just go to the priest and kind of get cleared so you can enter society again." So it's almost like a procedural thing, but don't tell anyone about it. Um, so, and many times there's, there's five, six instances of this in the New Testament, and I think there's two clear messages I come away with. Um, one is Jesus saying, "Don't tell anyone what I've done for you," and kind of a second thing he's saying is, is love others because the whole his whole life was about communicating love others. That's how people will know about who I am. Tim Stevens has been our guest. We've got more after this on the Pat Williams Saturday Power Hour. It's 94.9 FM and AM 950, The Word in Orlando. Our guest in that first segment, Tim Stevens, author of Marked by Love. Dave Mirror is with us from Redding, California. His new book is out, New Every Day, uh, giving caregivers dealing with dementia and Alzheimer's disease, the dose of humor they need. Dave is an award-winning author, talented humor writer, and uh, we're so glad that he's here. Nice to talk to you, Dave. How are you? Doing great, Pat. Good to meet the father of 157 kids. Well, Congratulations that's, that's on that. That's great. That's great. Well, uh, what's the deal here with Alzheimer's, and, and why are you writing about it? You know, uh, Alzheimer's is this uh, really depressing disease, and uh, we're in the thick of it. And when I was researching it, it was so depressing. The materials I were re- was reading, and, and I'm a humor writer, and I thought, is it possible to discuss this disease and, and provide helpful tips while also bringing a little bit of joy and humor back to our life as we try to navigate this disease? So this is my uh, my opportunity to try to mix a little bit of levity with a very serious disease, and I'm hoping that I pulled it off. Your first chapter is called Sweet Little Lies. What's that about? You know, I love my mother-in-law. Her name is Karen, and that's why I lie to her every single day. Uh, And and this was hard to do as someone who's a believer in God, but um, if she can't remember that her spouse passed away a few years ago, I'm not going to keep reminding her every day because it's new information. So I just make up things all the time. Like, Mm -hmm. hey, he's out, you know, he's a truck driver. You know how those truck drivers are. They're always on the road. And so uh, I just used, I just improv every day um, so that she's not in distress. My mother suffered from dementia in the closing years of her life. And Dave, we did exactly the same thing. You know, her father would be over in England with the queen for example, you know, these wild tales, and then we would just play off that. You know, have, have, have they eaten lunch yet, Mother? You know, we would just, I love your word, improv. And uh, and, and then my sister and I would just be in hysterics. You know, it's, and, and I met a friend the other day in a church parking lot, and he was talking about his dad who has dementia, and he just felt the need every day when his dad was distressed, like, well, where's, where's Evelyn? Where, where'd my wife go? And he, mm. he felt that he had to tell him. And it was just killing both of them because it was, it was like breaking the news every day. And he finally realized, hey, I can lie. I can say she went shopping. And that just solved the problem. And I, I think you have to really shift your paradigm. You know, you don't want to be dishonoring or lie to someone. But in this case, what good comes from reminding someone every day that their spouse is deceased? or when they're under the happy illusion that everyone they've ever loved is alive, there's no need to burst that bubble. You just roll with it. What's the difference between Alzheimer's and dementia? It's kind of the difference between potato and potato. And, and I'm not a medical professional, but dementia is an umbrella term that covers a lot of different uh, conditions that deal with cognitive disorders, Lewy bodies, dementia, and that type of thing. And, and Alzheimer's is, is one of the uh, conditions under that. But 
to me, they're all jets that are heading to the same airport, and it's never a smooth landing. So I focus really more on what does a family member do? What do you need to know? What are the behaviors you need to expect? And then how do you adapt? What do you do in very practical terms to adjust, whether it's just, you know, the term is dementia or whether it's Alzheimer's. It's all a breakdown of function of the brain, breakdown of ability to process information, memory. Um, so I'm not a medical professional, um, but I'm just saying whatever that, if it's an irreversible form of dementia, don't worry about the details, just deal with the condition. Dave Muir is our guest. So Dave, you open up with sweet little lies. Here's the second topic you write about, driven to distraction. Uh, fill us in on that. Yeah, I'm one of the few people on the planet who absolutely adores the Department of Motor Vehicles. Um, you know, I don't like the long lines. I don't like the forms. I don't like the fees. I don't like the taxes. I don't like the interminable delays. I don't like the implied message that all of this is somehow necessary for me to just drive to from point A to point B. But I am smitten with affection for the DMV because they're the ones who took my mother-in-law off the road. <laughs> I want to give them a collective kiss on their bureaucratic lips because there are a hundred different telltale signs that a loved one is losing the capacity to drive. And when you try to talk to them about that, getting them to release the keys is kind of like asking a mother bear, you know, hey, can I borrow one of your cubs for a while? Mm -hmm. um, so I learned that you can go to the Department of Motor Vehicles and anonymously rat out your loved one so that you can preserve the relationship. But then your loved one is going to get the, the notice in the mail and says, hey, you need to show up uh, to your doctor's appointment. There are some, some concerns about whether you can continue to drive. And that's where the wonderful and eminently smoochable people at the DMV come in. Uh, they will have this test administered, and there will be complex questions like, you know, what year is this? And if your loved one says it's 1945, or if they ask, you know, well, who's the president? Is Ronald Reagan? You know, what country are you in? Uh, California. Uh, what month is this? Easter. Uh, that quickly tells the doctor what he needs to know, and then they will take the keys away for you. What's the non-chapter note about? My non-chapter note is I was writing this book, you know, or scurrying around trying to take care of my mother-in-law, and I threw it together in a haphazard format, and I thought, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to eventually uh, sort this out and explain it to people and have the chronology make sense, and I never got around to doing it. And it's basically a note from Dave saying, look, this is really crazy and really busy, and these chapters are not in any logical sense, and please forgive me, but this is actually really good training for what you're about to deal with with dementia because <laughs> things are going to move back and forth, dates are going to be different, uh, chronologies are going to change, and so uh, this is a plea to cut me some slack because this has been a really difficult process. What do you write about in the chapter called The Runaway? Oh, there was a, a woman named Evelyn, and she was making a run for it out, out of a senior assisted living home. It wasn't actually a run. It was more like a, a very slow mosey uh, mm. toward the doors of Festive Acres Assisted Living, uh, where my mother-in-law lives. I changed the name. But uh, the, the senior, seniors can try to escape, and I thought, what are we going to do? This lady just said, well, I'll be leaving now, and she's got Alzheimer's, and she's heading out the door. Mm. And the young lady, Kyla, said, okay, thanks, Evelyn, bye-bye. Uh -huh. And Evelyn starts heading toward the door, and then, and then Kyla said, oh, Evelyn, you know, before you go, could you come down, could you help me fold these towels? I've just got so much laundry. Oh, sure, no problem at all. Uh, you can halt a runaway, typically by distracting them, so uh, a lot of that chapter is about how you redirect instead of arguing. You never argue with someone with Alzheimer's, but you can distract them. You can ask them to help you with something, and moments later they've forgotten that they were going to uh, head out the door. This is not normal. That's your next topic, Dave. You know, Alzheimer's, this is not normal aging. Um, when my mother-in-law looks at her, at her daughter and says, now, are, are you my niece? Um, are you my mother? Uh, that's not normal. Um, Alzheimer's is not a matter of old age. You know, a bit of memory loss can be, you know, kind of normal as we get older. But Alzheimer's and other kind of neurocognitive disorders—they're not a normal part of aging. It's—it's it's one thing if you pause for a minute to grasp for a familiar word, and it's another thing entirely to believe that you're living in your childhood home, or you're 300 miles away, or your daughter is your mother, or your deceased spouse just—you know—waved at you from the kitchen window. So. 
profound mental confusion is a disease. It's not a, a, a regular part of aging. And just uh, teaching people a little, about, a little bit about what, what to look for and not be in denial. Um, when, you know, we had a good friend who he did not want to believe that his mom had dementia or Alzheimer's. And he just kept saying, you know, it's just getting older. She's just getting older. And he cut her some slack and kind of argued with the rest of the family. And, and then one day he took her on a drive and she asked, you know, about 50 times, you know, what day it was. And it finally clicked. Okay, this, this isn't normal. And we're actually dealing with a disease. And it's just coming to grips with that. Now tell us about Money Matters. What's that chapter about? You know, if your loved one is going to need 24-7 care, you are suddenly hit with you know the reality of, I may need to come up with somewhere between $3,500 and $4,500 a month uh, for my loved one to be in an assisted living environment. And most of us don't have that kind of scare, uh, spare change, you know, in the sofa. So this is a, a really pragmatic chapter about where do you look for resources, uh, personal resources or resources that are available through through government. Um, you know, what does the safety net look like? Uh, helps you navigate what does what does Medicare do? What does medic what does Medicaid do? What what are the differences? Um, you know, what does the VA potentially provide? So this is just a really practical look at resources as you're trying to. Um, find a suitable living environment for your loved one if they can't live with you. Now, we, we had Karen initially at our house for a bit and discovered the hard way. She doesn't, she doesn't sleep. I, I do not know how you can get by with not sleeping, mm. but when we suddenly had a police officer in our bedroom at 2 o'clock in the morning shining his flashlight in our face and waking us up and saying he was responding to a 911 call, uh, I said, I don't know. Uh, no, we didn't. Call. We're fine. He said, Well, you got a senior citizen in your living room. Oh, oy vey. So we went out and met with her, and uh, she said, Ma'am, do you know who these people are? Uh, yes, that's my daughter, and that's the man who drives the big brown van. Mm. I don't. I don't know if she thought I was the UPS driver, but um, mm. yeah, the, the, you suddenly have to. Uh, if you can't accommodate having your loved one live with you because. They, their behaviors are, you know, awake all the time, that type of thing. Um, you have to find a place that works for both of you. I'm feeling fine. What's that mean? They can be under the impression that they're doing fine. Um, you know, when you start noticing things like mail stacking up on the table, um, the house is untidy, uh, the litter box has not been changed for a long time, uh, when you notice, oh, I just found a, a, an open can of soup uh, in the cupboard, uh, and I found broccoli in the bedroom drawer. You're in the position of trying to help your loved one understand things are not okay. And if this is mom or dad, they're often going to look at you like, you know, listen, whippersnapper, I changed your diapers, and I'm doing perfectly fine, and I do not need a busybody. So this is just some techniques on how to navigate helping your loved one let you assist them. And that, that can be really tough to navigate. Uh, doesn't broccoli belong in your bedroom drawer? <laughs> oh, gosh. <laughs> there are so many close calls. And you do want your, your loved one to be as independent as possible for as long as possible. I really believe that. And I think it's part of just their dignity. But there comes a point when you realize this, this is flat out dangerous and I can't, I can't let this go, even if they're going to be steamed at me. Uh, and I tried to get someone else to be the bad guy. I tried, I called our county, you know, adult protective services office and said, you know, here's the scoop and she's feeding ice cream to her spouse and he has diabetes and, you know, someone needs to intervene. And this very nice person from the county said, let me tell you the reality of the situation. You're, you love your in-laws. You're engaged in their life. You're trying to help them. We're prioritizing people who are on their own, abused, no one to look after them, grow up, get a grip, let them be mad at you for a bit, but this is on you. Go go in and, and uh, man up and take, take care of things. So um, I, I took those marching orders. Dave, tell us about this topic. Laughter is good for the soul, spleen, and mental health. You know, I think it's really good and important to laugh, um, not at your loved one, 
But things are going to come up. Like uh, we were at dinner. My mother-in-law is 85 years old. And she just popped off with a comment. She said, you know, I'm, I'm left-handed, but I like to bat with my right. Uh, uh, uh. And it just, I had to leave the table. I had to bite my tongue and just leave. Or she, they will occasionally say some things that just crack you up. And that's okay. You're not laughing at them. But, but when you're taken by surprise or something makes you laugh, um, I think it's good to go with that because this, this really difficult disease which does not end well, has the power to suck you into a black hole. And I recall reading years ago that Winston Churchill, at the height of World War II, had a regularly scheduled time when he would go watch uh, a Groucho Marx film, a Marx Brothers film, because he knew he needed to laugh. You can't take this relentless, serious difficulty um, constantly. And by trade, I'm a humor writer. Uh, and so I do try to imbue this serious subject with a little bit of a mental break and laughter at some of our shared experiences, because I think we just need that psychologically. Dave Muir is with us. His book, New Every Day. Uh, we've got another segment with Dave. Stay with us. This is the Pat Williams Saturday Power Hour. It's 94.9 FM and AM 950, The Word, in Orlando. And remember, faith. Comes by hearing. Dave Muir is in Redding, California. He's our guest. We're talking about his book, New Every Day, Navigating Alzheimer's with Grace and Compassion. Dave, uh, I want you to talk to us about notable techniques for beating a dead horse. Yes, this is great advice. If, if you need to get a dead horse moving again, uh, one of the most effective ways is to yell giddy up in a voice, uh, commanding voice, kind of reminiscent of John Wayne. And if that doesn't do the trick, uh, you can use some spurs, kind of jab at it a few times. And if that doesn't work, you can uh, get a baseball bat and just start wailing away until it gets up and, and starts to uh, gallop again. And after you've mastered that, then you're uh, ready to take on the more difficult challenge of having someone with Alzheimer's remember something that you want them to remember. Um, and I wrote the chapter when I was feeling a little bit testy because <clears throat> I just witnessed a clueless family member dealing with, you know, someone else other than my mother-in-law, you know, trying to jog the memory of someone with Alzheimer's. Well, mom, don't you remember? Or, you know, we just had this conversation five minutes ago. Uh, that's not going to work. You're not going to undo this disease. You're not going to jog their memory you need to accommodate to this new reality and adjust the way you talk to your loved one by not creating frustration or concern or alarm with a scary question like, hey, do you remember? Because the, the odds are they don't. And so what do you talk about? Uh, how about the here and now? Uh, hey, mom, look at this rose. Isn't that lovely? Or, you know, I love the pops that you're wearing today. Or I think the legislature needs to be sent to its room and have a glass of warm milk. You can talk about the here and now. You can talk about the future. You can get at a memory in kind of a roundabout way um, by not making it uh, difficult for them, by making a comment and just test the waters. Uh, like my mother-in-law, was, she grew up in Oregon. So sometimes I will just say, you know what I really like about Oregon? They have farms. And sometimes that will elicit a blank stare. And other times she'll say, well, I grew up on a farm in Oregon. Oh, really? Tell me more. Well, and back in the 1930s, and we, you know, we were in a cran, we were, you know, picked cranberries from a cranberry bog, and she'll talk to me about the car that she drove. So there are ways that you can talk about some still shared memories without making it difficult for them. Dr. Finster's Miracle Dimension Begone Elixir. Wow. Oh, you know what? The internet sometimes is not our friend, and I find it really disgusting and distressing that people are pitching uh, cures, uh, you know, hey, this uh, wild new technique, or this do this strange trick. It's like, no, there's no strange trick, there's no technique, there's no power food, there's no miracle food, there's no something magical um, that is going to snap your loved one out of dementia, and people need to not fall for that. Uh, and, and there is a temptation. I think people prey on your desperation and the fact that you, you don't like what you see happening, you know, for mom or dad. But 
I just kind of review a history in the United States of terrible cures. Uh, you know, people, women used to slather on arsenic uh, as a face cream. Um, you know, that's that's not terribly effective and uh, can result in massive, you know, organ failure and death. Um People have used mercury as a cure uh, for all kinds of things. Uh, it didn't cure much, but it did result in people assuming room temperature. So mm-hmm. I just kind of walk through history of there's there's a lot of uh, quackery that's gone on, and it still exists today. Don't go there. If there was a cure for Alzheimer's, there was a cure for dementia, this would be worldwide news. It'd be headline news all over the world. You are not going to find it tucked away in some corner of the Internet. What's the chapter this is going to hurt uh, about? You know, Pat, uh, you've you've had cancer, and we all suffer in different ways. I have not had cancer, but all of us have something hard happen to us. And this is a little bit of just Dave going theological a bit into we all hurt. We all have things that that um, break our heart in different ways, and Watching, especially if we watch someone who's suffering, that can really make you question, you know, is there a God and does he really care about us? And and I get that. I, I get the pain that when people are, are driven to ask that question. And, and, and where I land on that as a Christian and what I have to go back to uh, many times is um, Christ came, died for our sins. And to me, that, that settles the question of, is there a God and does he love us? Um, and I just have to go there a lot sometimes because when I look at my own life or I look at someone I love, like my mother-in-law, who's just declining with this terrible condition, um, in the absence of demonstrable proof of the love of God, we can start imagining he's an ogre, and I really believe he isn't. Um, there's just a lot of mystery. I don't have glib answers. Life is hard, but I do believe that God is good. Tell us about the ebb and flow of dementia. You know, one day we were going to have my mother-in-law over for a, a dinner. It was going to be her birthday. And the day before, she just couldn't get words out. It was incoherent. Mm. Not a single word was understandable. And I thought, oh, no. I mean, we, we finally turned a really bad corner. And I broke the news to my kids. Hey, we're still going to have Grandma over, but just have low expectations. Don't expect anything. She might not even be able to get a word out. You know, just kind of go with it. So we brought her over, and my son Brad walked in the door, and she said, Brad, I haven't seen you for two weeks. It's so nice to see you. How have you been? And Mark, how is school going? Mm. I thought, where did this come from? Mm. I mean, it was just a – and it wasn't getting better. It's just that that particular day, uh, the neurons, I guess, were connecting, and on some days they aren't. There can be ups and downs, and they can kind of surprise you. It's not going to be predictable, um, but – you never know. You just never know. Some can and do, some can't and shouldn't. Uh, you're going to have to explain that one, Dave. You know, um, my wife is a really good teacher, and she can deal with first graders. If you put me in a classroom full of first graders and turn me loose for a couple hours, I would be reduced to a fetal position and in tears, and I would mm-hmm. need you know, paramedics. Mm-hmm. Um so some of us are really good at some things, and when it comes to uh, Alzheimer's or a debilitating you know, dementia condition, I have met people who can just really roll with it, uh, particularly people who are in the healing professions. They have all kinds of energy. They can juggle multiple uh, Alzheimer's sufferers at once, and I've met family members who can deal with it day in, day out, which is great if they can manage that. But if you can't, then you shouldn't. I mean, if if it's just horrible every day and you're totally worn out and blown out and you find yourself frayed and depressed, I think you really need to assess what is your own capability. Uh, And I think that you just have to really be honest. And some people think, I don't have any options. You know, I'm the only only person who can take care of mom. Um, Let's reexamine that because it may be that it's not your calling. Anymore, like my brothers are really good using power tools and building things like houses. If you hand me a power tool, the end result looks like vandalism. So there are some things I don't do. And so go with what your strength is. Dave, we've got about a minute and a half. 
can you summarize the rest of the book that we don't have time for? Sure. This book is more than just a, a manual or a how-to on Alzheimer's. I'm, this book is an intent to be a friend on your journey of caring for your loved one with, with Alzheimer's. This book is packed with practical information, but also stories that are going to let you crack up. It's divided into 30 chapters. It's an easy one a day. You can leave it in the restroom. This is to, intended to bring you a little bit of peace, a little bit of joy, and some practical information as you journey, uh, as you take this journey with your loved one. Um, you shouldn't feel alone, uh, and you don't have to be alone. What happens in these care places where these uh, dementia people are placed? What goes on there? You know what? You really need to shop around. There are good ones, but you also read in the newspaper periodically about terrible ones. You need to show up before mom or dad gets placed. Take a look. Does it smell good? Does it look good? Does it look home-like? You know, take a look at the staff. What's the staff ratio? And I have a chapter that deals with how you pick one and so you don't have mom or dad in a place that's, um, that's not good. A good one is really like a home living environment with a bunch of grandparents and a very loving staff person. And we've found that to be available and true, but you do, you do have to do your homework. Dave Mirror has been our guest, author of New Every Day. Uh, we've got a wrap-up right after this on the Pat Williams Saturday Power Hour. It's 94.9 FM and AM 950, The Word, in Orlando. Folks, thanks for joining us here on the Pat Williams Saturday Power Hour. Tim Stevens was with us uh, in the first segment talking about Mark by Love. And then Dave Muir plugged in from California uh, talking about New Every Day, his advice and counsel on dealing with uh, people uh, struggling with dementia or Alzheimer's. Uh, please visit our my website. It's patwilliams.com. Uh, the Twitter page, Orlando Magic Pat. And uh, check out my most recent book. You can go up to Amazon, of course. It's called Coach Wooden's Forgotten Teams. It's the fourth book I've written about John Wooden. And this one's about uh, the, the summer camps that he ran for so many years in the L.A. area. And it gives a, a really unique look at uh, the great John Wooden. Uh, we're back next weekend for more. In the meantime, have a wonderful week ahead. Uh, this is the Pat Williams Saturday Power Hour. And this is 94.9 FM and AM 950, The Word in Orlando. Three-star general Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal records to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.